Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. Welcome to Pretty Mental. This week, we sat down with Adam Funderburg. He's a therapist here in Atlanta who has been practicing Buddhism and meditation for about 20 years. And we spoke with him about the difference and similarities between religion, spirituality, past lives, and reincarnation, and basically how to use mindfulness to face into and move through any emotions and painful experiences that come in our lives. So get your soundproof headphones, your vacuum cleaner, and clean those dirty-ass carpets you haven't cleaned since who knows when, and press play. Adam with the flip phone. (laughs) Welcome to Pretty Mental. We are so happy to have you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Let's jump right into it. We wanted to get going by first asking you to help us understand what is Buddhism? Buddhism. It's interesting. Buddhism didn't used to be called Buddhism. It used to be called study of the Dhamma, which is a study of the truth. Basically is is following the teachings of the Buddha, uh, mm. the teachings that he laid out uh, to basically help people to overcome suffering or dukkha so dukkha is suffering uh suffering and kind of like like a lack of um a lack of satisfactoriness the, it's funny the actual poly translation uh dukkha it it refers to like a wheel of an axle in like an old cart but that doesn't actually fit well so it's a bumpy ride it's so it's almost like something's not right with the ride a sense of unease. Yes, like an unease. And, and, and even when things are good, there's still this sense that it's not permanent and it's not always going to be that way. I can relate to that so much. And that's actually a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I was, <laughs> why does that make you laugh? That's funny. Because we can both very much relate to, <laughs> yeah. to this. Uh-huh. And that's a conversation that I've had recently with somebody where I said that even the great things in life can feel heartbreaking because when you're in it and within it, you know that it can't stay that way forever. Yes. Yes. It's like, um, it's, it's funny when I listen to, um, if you ever listen to like, like traditional Irish music, they've got that sense in the, in the lyrics. It's like this extremely beautiful sound, but there's a sadness there too, because it's impermanent. Like you're just kind of watching it pass or, or kind of like watching a child grow up or something like that. It's, uh, it's it's yeah it's that effervescence quality does being buddhist keep you from too high of highs and too low of lows essentially is what i'm hearing is it like a neutral feeling always or um not necessarily but but it tends to um it tends to mitigate some of that like like you know but the the key i guess i had a teacher one time tell me that it's not that we don't enjoy like when things are good but we just recognize that that we can't hang all our hopes on that like, you know, that's going to change. Um, even, you know, being in good health, you know, that's, you know, it's fine. You enjoy it, even take steps to be healthy, but ultimately it's going to change. What is your 
What is your practice or self-dialogue for not clinging to that? Sometimes exactly that. Like uh, I've, there's, a, there's a saying, um, it's a traditional Buddhist saying, but kind of you say, not me, not mine, not my own. And so that idea that whatever I'm experiencing, it's not personal, like it's a result of the conditions that have brought it about. And again, you can enjoy it, be part of it, take care of things, but at the same time, recognize that it's going to pass. But also, but then the flip side is when things are difficult, that also works too, because, you know, if things are really hard, you also recognize it's not permanent, which the mind can sometimes make it think that it is, or it's never going to change. I'm really glad you brought that up because when things are bad, we have a tendency to think it's going to last forever. And when things are good, we're always afraid of it ending. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we do that? <laughs> that, that that's, a, that's a funny, yeah, like the, that's a mystery. Like maybe it's just the way we're put together, but it's... But it, it's interesting because that's the dilemma. And even from a neurobiological standpoint, like I like reading a lot of neurobiology too. It's like, it's almost like humans have a predisposition for the negative because it's like it had survival value. You know, you could be walking back after a long day of hunting and gathering and all of a sudden it's it's like, you know, we're looking at the, the trees and the flowers, but then the first tiger you don't see gets you. So it's like to kind of be negative, help people to stay alive. <laughs> you're always looking for the problems. But the problem is we just keep doing it. Like we can't seem to stop. Until we bring mindfulness into it. Well, that's a good tool. You meditate. Yes. You were telling us about that before the interview. And how has Buddhism with meditation helped you with your relationship in life? I see meditation as that time to, to spend working on your mind without the regular distractions of life. It, it's, it's almost like, um, it's kind of like when you go to the gym and just lift weights. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't do curls very often in regular life. But you can use the strength you develop there to do other things, to you know, lift my nieces or to you know, run or carry groceries. And so like meditation is kind of like a focused practice to actually work on the mind and spend the time doing it. And hopefully then that strength carries over to your daily life, like it carries over to like other situations. What would you say to people who say, I can't meditate, I hate meditation, I'm bad at it? I'd say that's really common. <laughs> I'd say like that, that seems to be, everybody seems to be bad at it at certain points. Everybody like, says that. They're, oh yeah. I have so many people say, Meditation is not for me. I can't do it. <laughs> I, I've heard that many times myself. I think I've said it myself probably a few times. And I would just, I would kind of counter with the fact that the reason why we meditate is because we're, we're not good at it. It's like, you know, like if you're already good at it, you don't need to practice. And, and I hear a lot, particularly from clients, you know, I can't stop my thinking, so I can't meditate. But luckily for, particularly for mindfulness meditation, you don't have to stop your thoughts. It's like, it's about just recognizing that they're there and not getting personally involved. And when people say they're bad at it, and again, I feel like I go on all these tangents because I don't want to be like, you know, bashing technology, but, but we live in a culture that's, that's not conducive to concentration. Like we got so many distractions. There's so many different ways to not be present. And so training the mind to be present is important. A lot of the studies that they've done, like monks have known this for a really long time, but now with EEG studies, they've like um, there's a guy named Matthew Ricard who's a Tibetan uh, monk that they do a lot of studies on, and he was a French neurochemist before he was a monk, so he was kind of a natural choice for some of these experiments. But what was so amazing was they found that literally the parts of his brain that corresponded to happiness were larger. They actually grew, and the parts of his brain that corresponded to fear and anxiety were smaller. They had shrunk. So you're literally training your brain to kind of see things differently and to you're kind of training that ability to be happy. And so it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to me, like particularly with the studies, you got these old practices, but yet all these new studies that can kind of basically kind of confirm what people have known for a long time. But at the same time, it's just neat to see it. Yeah. Well, in, in our 
current society, we always want evidence of things before we are willing to embrace it. Uh, yeah, that seems to be the case. And uh, but I find that's a good end sometimes, particularly with uh, like you know like Western clients who haven't been exposed to some of these ideas. You know, it's like they might think they're a little weird, or they might. And but if you can kind of bring the scientific aspect first. And then once they can see that, it kind of opens them up a little bit more to the other pieces that, that I think are important too. So there's that, that science behind it that it opens up the parts of your brain that are conducive to happiness and shrinks the parts of your brain that create suffering. Mm-hmm. How have you experienced it from a personal level in real, in real life? Like real situations? Yeah. I guess the, the main thing is I feel like over the time I've been practicing, I've gotten less reactive to things. It's like things that maybe used to bother me more or would, would get me angry. And, and again, it's not like I never get frustrated or angry, but but it feels like it's I'm easier able to see it, not identify with it so much, and then let it go much easier. And then some things too, like I was surprised, some things that used to bother me just don't anymore. And it's not like I specifically set out to to stop worrying about the specific thing, but it's just you know, like traffic bothers me less. When people don't necessarily meet expectations, it bothers me less. It's, it's like it's just, it's kind of this acceptance. But then that, that kind of turning in, I think it's also helped with acceptance of others because I realize that as complicated as my mind is, like everybody's mind is like that. And so it's easier too when, you know, I don't know, you see somebody acting in a way that you disapprove of, but it's like, you know what, they're going through the same thing I'm going through. It's like, so there's, you need to be more compassionate. It's like getting more present within yourself allows you to connect with other people. Definitely. I would say that's true. And it's interesting. They did a study too. Again, one, another one of those neurological studies. We love the studies. Bring I, them all in. I love the studies. <laughs> it's like, uh, I like the, 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 this intersection we're at at this point in history. It, it's mm, like, because we've got access to, even they're translating a lot of old texts now that haven't been, uh, one of my good friends, um, he helps a, a monk to uh, basically to edit texts that he translates. And it's amazing stuff that hadn't been translated in thousands of years is now being translated into English so I can read it. And But at the same time, they're doing all these you know neurological studies and we understand the mind so much. And so it, to me, the intersection is is really nice. It's like I'm, I, like Emory University, um, they're, they're teamed up with the Tibetans. And so the Dalai Lama, it's amazing. Like he's really embraced science. And so he's offered up monks for like studies and things like that. So it's, it's, it's just nice to see that they don't have to be exclusive. It's not like either science or like spiritual practice. It's like, no, it can be both. It's like that both can make sense. And what was the study that you were going to talk about with compassion? Oh, and here, here's the... Yeah. Before I interrupt Yeah, you. here's my mindfulness too. Like it, I forgot what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I said being more present with yourself allows you to be more... Yes, yes. There was a study that they did and they found that contemplative practice created more empathy in others. So they, and so that was the study there because... As you understand your own mind and just how complicated and sometimes contradictory it can be. And sometimes, um, you know, there can be useful and, and not useful things going on at the same time. But then you kind of get that insight that, that the same thing is going on with everybody else. And that, you know, we're, we're more similar than we are different. And so that, that idea that, that you can have more empathy and compassion for people, that's a, that's a natural outgrowth, I think, of the practice. There seems to be a lot of confusion and, and debates and resistance sometimes to spirituality versus religion versus contemplative practices. What do you think the difference and similarity is between all those things? So like so I think a spiritual practice and, and even some of my clients that come in that, that are that you know like you say atheism is their 
their belief, but yet still there's this spiritual, kind of this existential kind of yearning, like wanting to understand things bigger than ourselves and kind of where we fit in to the picture. And sometimes religious practices have kind of formalized it a little bit more. Maybe they've, you know, kind of given some tools and, you know, kind of taken care of that faith aspect that I think sometimes is hard. Even in our current society, it, it, it's like there's so many wonderful things, but yet one of the, the negatives that I see is that it, it's like once it feels like you take away a lot of traditional support, mm-hmm. um, sometimes people feel like they're not left with much. It's like in there, they kind of have this emptiness and there's this kind of searching. So I think sometimes like a spiritual search and contemplative practices, because they can be scientific, almost like I see that as um, kind of an, an end. What do you mean by contemplative practices? So like um, like anything that, that involves like like meditation or, or, or kind of turning inward, like kind of that idea that it's less that what happens outside, but what's happening inside. So um, even prayer. I'd say prayer is a contemplative practice. It's like, an, and even in Buddhism, there, there are prayers. Um, Tibetan Buddhism in particular, they recommend prayer as part of your daily practice. Theravadan's a little more stodgy, and they don't do that, that sometimes. But there's so many different ways of using that. And it's interesting, too, because like Western Buddhism has kind of taken the scientific route, but traditional Buddhists very much believe in like a, a bigger universe, you could say, and other realms of being, other beings out there, stuff besides humans. Rebirth, that's a big issue but you know any traditional buddhist particularly in um other countries rebirth is seen as very common very normal talk about that reincarnation and past lives can you break that down for us yeah well i'll, I'll try it's like it's um or or even do you believe in that that's a good question that's something actually lately i've been really considering because there's people that i respect greatly who believe it. And not without evidence. It's interesting. There's a study by Biko Analio. He's a German scholar monk, and he wrote a book recently called Rebirth. And he put forth this study that, that this one gentleman had done, kind of talking to kids who had these memories, and they checked them out, and they turned out to be accurate. And there was one monk in particular who, when he was a kid, he could recite these Pali verses, and it was a very old version of Pali, too. It wasn't one that's used now. But when they checked it out, he was reciting these Buddhist verses, and he remembered being a monk. And he's since become a monk, and he says he's since also forgotten. But when he was a kid, they have recordings, and it's just interesting. So let's just say, like, I'm open to the idea that there's a possibility. I'm not going to say for certain that it is that is the way the universe works, but at least being open to the idea. And even the idea of rebirth is a larger picture, too, because rebirth is not just from life to life, but it's moment to moment. It's kind of the idea that we're not the same from moment to moment, and all the conditions that that affect us create the next moment that we're going to be, but then what we put out also creates the next moment. So it's kind of like the idea, it seems very normal, like throughout, like like I say, like a regular life. So it doesn't seem like as much of a stretch sometimes maybe to extend it a little bit, like, okay, like uh, the Tibetans in particular have a very rich tradition talking about rebirth. They call it the bardo, which is like the spirit, the, the, the space between one birth and another. What came up for me was this thing that Eckhart Tolle says, which is that in each moment we have to die mm-hmm. to the next one. And that's what I feel when I'm experiencing joy and pleasure. There's a part of me that if I, if I don't want to suffer, I have to be willing to... There's a part of you that you have to surrender. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I experience that as humbling. Yes. Actually, I could see that, like that idea that you're, you're surrendering to that moment, like you're surrendering to that, and you're kind of taking the, the me out of it and just letting it, letting it be what it is. And I think that people are afraid of becoming too passive mm. if they embrace that. I, I've experienced it. Sometimes I wonder if I'm 
Am I taking it to an extreme? Am I being too passive? Am I too okay with loss? Am I too okay with things moving and people coming in and out, right? That actually comes up a lot in the in the the group, the the mindfulness group at uh, at work. You know, because people say, "Oh, if I'm if I'm mindful all the time, I'm gonna well, just let people walk on me, or I don't make any changes in my life." And someone's once described it, which I like this way of looking at it. It's it's like a dance between action and then acceptance. It's like taking the actions that you can, but letting go where you can't, and that's a moment to moment thing you know sometimes women we can take action sometimes our actions do have results and so if you can take an take a positive action that's that's a good thing but we also have to be willing to let go and it's i think it's it's almost kind of like i think that mind that we have like how it evolved it just doesn't want to let go it's like it it works really great up to a point and then it just doesn't know when to stop (laughs) it's like like okay now let's control everything if you look at around at our society Sometimes it's comical. Sometimes I laugh at, at us, right? Because it started out with agriculture and we are constantly trying to be more and more and more and more and more comfortable. And yet people are more stressed out and anxious and suicidal than ever. It's quite an interesting thing. It's Yeah, sometimes when I see, and again, like I always feel like I'm bashing technology, but it's um, when I see just some of the things that come out, I just wonder like how easy do people want it to be? And again, not saying that we shouldn't have things that make our lives better, but sometimes that that line of better versus it's just taking up space, sometimes that's a hard line. And so I think whatever it is, being very intentional with your choices. And and sometimes like when I describe mindfulness to people, that's a big part of it is, is the intentionality. It's like it's not just letting the reaction make your decisions, but yet how do you respond? You know, even in, even if you're having a strong reaction or even if you're having a certain feeling come up, being able to recognize it for what it is and then decide, I may not want to respond that way. Or you may, like maybe that is the way you respond. But either way, it's a, it's like, say, it's a conscious choice. It's more of a responding rather than a reacting. Mm-hmm. What are some things that we can be doing differently as a society to more effectively be treating mental health? I think starting kids younger, understanding their minds, because it seems like, and again, it's changing some. I have seen some positive change with that. But it, a lot of times, even, and maybe Paul has heard this before with from clients too, but sometimes when I'll teach what I think is a very basic understanding of the mind, like I think like just understanding your, your like, you know, what's going on, people go, God, I wish I would have learned this when I was a kid. And I was like, I wish that too, because, you know, you figure that your mind state determines almost more than anything else, like your, how happy you are. It's like, because if you're, even if things are going relatively well, like if you've got a really negative mind state, it's hard to see it. And to not teach that, at a young age, like to make it more of a natural part of, I think that would be a big step is, is if it could become normal to, to understand like your emotions, understand like, you know, how your thoughts affect your emotions and, and kind of how that cycle works. How do we understand them? How do we, when we have anxiety or depression, how do we not get overtaken by them? Practice. Even in the group, when I constantly remind people that mindfulness is a practice, because cognitive knowledge is not enough. I use, always use the analogy of tennis. If you read a book on tennis, cognitively everything about the game, you might could watch a game and understand it, but you, you know, put yourself out on the court and start lobbing balls towards you, it's like you're not going to know what to do. It's like the hours and hours of practice that make you able to respond instinctively. And so same thing with like mindfulness and, and meditative practices. The more that you can understand, because emotion is naturally powerful, like it's designed that way, particularly uh, anxiety and anger, because those are both your sympathetic nervous system. It's like fight or flight. 
you know, like anger's the fight and, and anxiety's the flight. But those things came about because of life and death situations. So the mind treats it that way. So it's extremely powerful. It tends to overwhelm like any kind of conscious thought. But the more that you can kind of ride it, see it and recognize it for what it is and not fight it and not, you know, kind of judge yourself for having it, but just recognize, okay, this is what's occurring. I recognize it and also recognize physically what's happening, all these things and recognize how it affects your thoughts. The more you can kind of see how that process works and then see how like when you start thinking negatively, it starts feeding back into that feeling, which then feeds into the thought, you kind of get that circle. But the more that you can kind of see that process, and I think that's what meditation helps a lot with is being able to see it as it occurs. And then so then you have options. One of the analogies for mindfulness is creating space. And so you create space in the mind, but but basically create enough space around it that you actually can do different things. It's almost like if it's if it's so tight in the mind that you can't see anything else, it's like you, you almost like there's nothing you can do. It just overwhelms the mind. But if but if you kind of create space around it, it's like it may still be there, but it's not the only thing that's there. It's like there's still choice. There's still your intention to do something different. But but you have to practice it to do it. It's like that's the main thing I try to get across to people is that it's good to understand the theory, but but you need to apply it every day. And I think that fear, people want to find a way out of that as soon as possible, right? Fear and anxiety are the same thing, Yeah. synonymous. But anger can be a very addicting emotion. It is. I, heard, I actually heard a great quote recently. They said anger's allure is also its danger because anger makes us feel powerful, but it doesn't necessarily make us powerful. And so that's why it's addicting. Yes, because because it, it, in anger, it's you figure it's designed for that. Because like even like, thinking back to like a mother rabbit, you know, normally they'll run. Like if they feel threatened, they're trying to escape. But if they're cornered, they might have to face something larger, more dangerous. So like that that feeling of anger kind of gives that power to to face it. And same thing for humans. And so sometimes anger can be used. It's not like anger. I mean, nothing wrong with anger. But the problem is, I think it gets so easy to kind of use anger instead of the action. And again, like I don't want to bash our society too much, but it seems like (laughs) people seem like addicted to anger and outrage. Yeah. And again, it's not that some things don't need to be changed, that they do. But sometimes there's a better way of doing it than than allowing the anger to kind of because the problem with anger, like there's an old Buddhist story. They said anger is like picking up hot coals and throwing them at somebody. You know, you're burning them, but you're burning your own hands, too. And it, it, it's like that idea that it also makes like ultimately it's it's rough on us as well. And so sometimes if anger can be like a very directed thing or it can be understood and then sometimes a, a better action can be taken. How can we help people understand that anger is hurting us sometimes if people i think this is where a meditative practice can be helpful because you can start to see the cause and effect more i kind of liken it to when i when i finally stopped like 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 overeating recognizing that okay there's say 20 minutes of really good and maybe like hours of like pain <laughs> and and so uh and they realize, this is not balanced like i'm not doing myself any favors by doing this and it's like and and so the mind can kind of trick and say oh you deserve it say well do i deserve to suffer for six hours mm. no and so so seeing the whole picture so sometimes anger sometimes in certain situations again it feels really good and sometimes but then once you start looking at the long-term effects and how it affects your mind state during the day and how you might affect people who have nothing to do with the source of anger because that's one of the problems with anger and and maybe you've seen this with clients that you've worked with too. It's like, it's not so much the fact that they're angry. It's the fact that anger makes them do and say things that they regret. And, and then it causes more problems. And so it's like being able to see that, that 
the anger's not the problem, it's what it causes you to do and act. And so the more that you can kind of recognize that and see, like I see the cause and effect and see the negative aspects, which may be more subtle or may not be right in that moment. You know, sometimes you have to kind of space it out a bit to be able to see. And just to bring in some neuroscience, it also shrinks our, our, our memory system. Ah, that, that's a good way, yeah. Yeah, it shrinks our hippocampus, the part of our brain that holds on to memories. That, that's a good point. So, yeah, bringing that up yeah. to, to clients and letting them know it's really like your brain doesn't like to be angry for long. Like, and in, in most of the, in essentially, because like your sympathetic nervous system, like the way it evolved was designed. You probably remember that book. Uh, I think it's in the office. Um, why zebras don't get ulcers. Why zebras don't get ulcers. Yeah, it's like, because it, it was designed for short bursts to get you out of danger and then be gone. That's it. And whereas, whereas humans, we can like, oh, we can keep it going for, for, for years like if we want to it's funny we talk about like especially Atlanta traffic um I always say like we should be thankful for Atlanta traffic because it's a great way to practice because I haven't yet met anybody who likes it but the reason why you're angry in traffic is not because you're sitting moving slowly in your car it's because the thoughts and the story about being in traffic oh I shouldn't be here I need to be there not here or like what's this, what's this guy doing in front of me or all this kind of stuff, whereas just sitting in a climate-controlled vehicle, chilling to some music, it's like, that's really not that bad. So what I keep hearing is that what gets us stuck in these emotions like anxiety and fear and anger are our thoughts. It's the logical side of us that wants to make up stories for why we should be feeling that way. And the way the way we combat that is going physical, going to the physical side with just feeling our sensations and our emotions and breathing. I would say yes. That that's a that's a that's a, a very good strong practice is to come back to the body and to recognize too like that the mind sometimes is trying to help us because it's trying to problem solve because it, it wants to head off the problems. But like we said before, it just doesn't know when to stop. It, it's it's almost it's almost like it just it's not content with solving the problem it's got to solve like every problem and and so when you get caught in that loop because one of the the fun quirks of being human is that you say the body doesn't know the difference between like a strong thought or sensory information and so you can be like you know laying in bed safe warm nothing happening but thinking about something that made you angry and then the body's like uh-oh anger like something's up and so it starts to basically turn on the sympathetic nervous system because the mind is telling it there's a problem and the body is very present moment oriented. Like didn't get this whole past future thing. And so it just, if the mind is telling it there's a problem, it's like, that's the biggest problem with like say PTSD and things like that. It's not that they're remembering the experience. It's that they're re-experiencing like that moment. And same thing with anxiety, you know, like you can, you might have like a speech or something you got to give, I don't know, a week from now. And, but if you're, thinking about it thinking about, oh what are they gonna say what if I mess up what if I it's like you're imagining that strong enough that the body's like oh we're in trouble turn on the sympathetic nervous system and so the way to come out is to be very present and realize okay I'm sitting here I'm experiencing this sensation seeing what's happening and even if the thought is there you're not necessarily trying to fight it but you're trying to recognize it as thought like okay mind is thinking cool come back to the breath come back to the body why do you think we're so afraid of addressing our emotional pain? Why do we suppress it, run from it, numb it? Yeah, that's a that, that's a that's a great question. Um, 
I think Paul and I'd be out of a job if people did, which would be good. I mean, I wouldn't mind having to switch careers. Yeah, it's like, but but it's like, uh, I think because for sometimes it's so painful, and then the mind can make it more painful by creating the story around it, and so you kind of get into that habit of, I don't want to experience this pain, so therefore I'm going to try to avoid it or do something different, or you know, maybe I'll I'll take a substance and not feel it, or maybe I. I'll cut myself so I don't have to feel that thing. I can feel something more like another sensation. Which brings you into the present moment. It, it, it brings you fully into the present moment. And so it, so it's a strategy that works. It's just it doesn't address the underlying thing that keeps you in that pattern. And it, it's almost like as people get used to avoiding, it, it kind of creates that story even more deeply. It's I always say like um, people like like horror writers and who do like movies and books. Uh, Stephen King's a master at it. They show you just enough to terrify you. It's it's like that little thing at the corner of your eye that is hiding is very terrifying because the mind fills in all the details. Sometimes if you see it, I'm thinking picture of the cheesy like 80s movies that I watched. Like you know special effects are bad. <laughs> like once you see it, it's really not that scary. Really it's more like that's the monster. Like okay, like uh, this guy with the mask. It's like. And even if it's kind of gross, it's still, you see it, so you know what it is. But that thing that's always kind of held at arm's length is very scary. But the problem is, as we become used to avoiding, it's like we hold it at arm's length, hold these emotions at arm's length, and then they get more and more scary. And so sometimes over time, it just becomes so habitual that now it seems terrifying to address it. And yeah, I, I think that's something like with that, like that, that nature of avoid it. But then the more we avoid it, the scarier it gets. I've had that experience with a few clients where it was clear that they had built up so much avoidance of their suffering throughout the years that coming to see me, it felt threatening. Mm, yeah. I've had people that weren't able to come back because they knew that we were going to face into it. And as I'm sitting there, my heart is breaking for them because I see that they're just prolonging their suffering. You know, I, I want to reach out and tell them, no, come back. Like, we can do this. We can go into it so you can shed it. Like, liberate yourself. But people are so scared. Yeah. They'd rather continue to live in a constant state of anxiety, which is what ends up happening when we suppress all that pain because it's not going anywhere. No, no, it's not. And Yeah. What's crazy is that we're so afraid to address it and we push it to the back of our minds. And by doing so, we think it's disappeared. But what I've realized with my own experience is all that's doing is shrinking up your life. It's Mm. making your world smaller. Yes. And you stop thriving. You stop being as alive as you could be. You think you're protecting yourself and you just don't even notice that you're really shrinking up your world. A hundred percent agree with that. That, and it's interesting because, yeah, because people think they're protecting themselves, and so they'll avoid certain things, like say, and, and this happens a lot, even with panic attacks or things, or even OCD. But like they'll start avoiding that place that maybe they felt really threatened. But say the problem is the mind can always make up more, like the mind, because it's the mind that causes the threat, and so people kind of, yeah, there are, there are things that can hurt us out there, definitely, but but the mind is what attaches the fear to it, but the mind can always attach fear. So say I successfully avoid, okay, I'm not going to get on a plane. Okay, I'm not going to do that. 
uh, okay, now the bus kind of feels like that. <laughs> and now that kind of feels like, now the store feels a little like that. It's like, cause the mind can always attribute that. And so, yeah, okay, I'm gonna avoid buses now. It's like, and yeah, your world gets smaller as it starts to, the fear starts to be everywhere. So we slowly start shutting ourselves out to different parts of our life. Yeah, that's when it becomes, gosh, it's evading me. Is it agoraphobia? No. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Agoraphobia, agoraphobia. when you when you just don't even want to leave your house. Yeah. and that, there That's was an a- actual diagnosis. There's people that are afraid of leaving their house. And you could say that's like kind of that culmination of that fear. Mm-hmm. And then the, the sad thing is that still doesn't liberate them from their fear. Like they're very fearful in their homes too. I mean, it's like because the mind can still keep creating that fear. Yeah. Because if it worked, you know, like, hey, fine, but it just doesn't work. You're nourishing the monster. Definitely. You're creating it. You're like feeding that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, whereas you could say that the path of even practice, which it's funny because it goes all the way back to ancient times, but even it's like it's facing the, um, I think I might have told, there's a quote I like by Joseph Campbell. It said, the cave you fear to enter contains the treasure you seek. And so it's kind of that that old symbol of like the dragon guarding the treasure, but it's it's like that, it's symbolic of facing the fear to get to the things that matter the most. Mm-hmm. That's why our family is, <laughs> we're like, show me right now. We want to, <laughs> it's so true. And I say that in all my relationships. I'm like, listen, if you see something holding me back, you better call me out. You better call me out now. I'm not trying to build this up until whatever age and have it become almost impossible to break. Mm-hmm. I love getting called out. <laughs> Yeah, we call each other out all the time. See, that's awesome because more people should do that because and maybe you could say that's what a, a counselor is, kind of a professional caller-outer. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, hey, you need to stop doing that or like we need to address this. Professional like, caller-outer. Yeah. I like that. You put that on your card. Yeah, I'm going to put that on. <laughs> call, yeah, just call me if you want to get called out. <laughs> Why do you think there is an increase in depression and suicide and anxiety right now? I think it, it's a complicated picture, but but there's a lot of societal factors, I guess, coming. I think people, and again, here comes that technology thing again. But 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 it's easier to be alone. Like in the past, it's funny because I read a is a great article. It, it's called the dark side of community. So it's it's saying that you know because com- communities become a great word, but yet people forget there's also it, it's not all fun and games to be part of a community either. It's like there's boundaries and there's things you got to do, obligations. It's like but in the past, it, it wasn't a choice. You know, it's like I, I like to read a lot of like historical, you know, nonfiction things. And, you know, for the most part, people needed each other to survive. And so like you, you literally to be outcast was to die. And yet in our society now, it's, it's easier than ever. You don't have to leave your home if you don't want to. They can deliver things. They can, you know, you can work from home. You can. So it's easier to be isolated. We don't need each other physically as much. Theoretically. Theoretically, yes. And. But that emotional tie and that need is still there. It's almost harder to express. It's like I think in a lot of the old systems of thought, like and again, not not every old system of thought's like perfect, but yet it kind of gives a framework for how things work. And a lot of that's been, you know, I see a lot of nihilism, like in uh, in clients, like people who don't literally don't they don't have any religious beliefs, they don't have any even existential kind of beliefs and like morals and things and like. Um, or even kind of a, a picture of how the universe works other than just as a very hostile, random place. And and so like that combined with, oh God, there's so many factors, and, there, and we have such a divisive society at this particular moment too. I mean, that's happened before, but it's 
happening again. And it's just, um, it seems like a lot of factors are coming together and it's easier to avoid than ever. You know, we were talking before that kind of like increases fear. And so it's easier than ever to avoid. Like we have supercomputers in our pockets that we can, you know, if you don't want to be with there, it's like, I always think it's interesting, like any restaurant you go to or even the waiting room of our uh, institute, you know, look out. I guarantee you nine out of 10 people are, are on the phone. Mm-hmm. That takes me back to what you were saying earlier that without any kind of, and I don't know if this is exactly how you said it. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but basically that when we don't have a belief, we almost were rootless. I, I think that's accurate. The best description I heard from it was actually uh, Bhante Buddha Rikita. He was a monk at uh, the Bhavana Society. That basically, like he talked about the Buddhist precepts, like you know, like basically, you know, not killing, not stealing, and and basically the basic five precepts. That, um, but he said they act more like not so much as commandments that you have to follow regardless of anything. It's more like that's your that's your north star, and it's like you know, and 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 the thing is, it's interesting. We can't actually fully meet them. Like, so non-harming, like, you know, you know, I undertake the precept not to take life. But by the very fact that we live, we take life. Um, you know, there's microorganisms, insects that, you know, die all the time. But the goal is that. So it's almost like if you find yourself lost, you know, look up, find the North Star. Where do I go? It's like, and so they, so that sense of kind of that belief or that, that, that at least that ethical compass kind of makes decisions easier. And then ironically, less anxiety because you've got at least some basis to make your decisions with. Yeah, I think humans need something to believe in. It seems that. This takes me back to what we were saying in the beginning with mindfulness. When we have something to believe in, we almost it makes us more intentional. So we're more aware of how we're acting and what we're doing because we have this higher belief that is guiding the rest of our actions. I, I think that's, that's correct. And I, I think that's one of the... So it's funny, like, like I'm happy that mindfulness has become so popular in our culture because it makes it easier to talk to people about. But one of the drawbacks of that is that you start seeing it everywhere. And I was expecting this, but the first kind of pushback, there's a book that came out called Make Mindfulness and kind of like the, like the, the, the consumer culture mindfulness. And the problem with some of the, the Western approaches is that like when, when people first brought mindfulness practices over in the 70s, they didn't really want to bring some of the ethics with it. They thought, oh, that's just that religious stuff. Like we're going to bring the, you know, like the, the insight and, and the, the intellectual things. But then the problem is the, the precepts, the ethics, compassion, all those things, that's the guiding force of mindfulness. So like mindfulness is almost like a diagnostic tool to say, okay, this is happening. You know, here's my mind, here's my emotions, here's what's going on. But then your beliefs, your ethics, your, your values determine what do you do with that. Like kind of gives you so like mindfulness gives you hopefully the opportunity for choice, but then the choice that you make is dictated by those things. Because like someone made a good point, like a sniper is mindful, you know. <laughs> I mean, up there, I mean, mm-hmm. they and or someone breaking into your house is mindful because they're fully in the moment, they're aware, they're probably all their senses are alert. But what they're doing might not be very ethical, but like, but they're but they're in a mindful state, and so mindfulness by itself. That's why in tradition, like in Buddhism, like with the, in the Eightfold Path, like mindfulness is one spoke of the wheel. It's like there's seven other spokes, which includes ethics and values and concentration, includes all these other pieces. So mindfulness, I think, is essential, but at the same time, it's 
it's like one tool in your in your toolbox I want your perspective on this I was having a conversation with someone the other day and I was on the side of humans are all good at their base and this person that I was speaking to said hell no there are some (laughs) bad humans on this planet and it's really hard for me to it's hard for me to believe that anyone is inherently bad what is your perspective on that so the, the the Buddhist view is that people are inherently pure and it's like kind of the, the things that get in the way. It's kind of like someone described like a, like a dirty window. It's like the sun or the light's coming through, but it can get very covered. We seem to be kind of molded by our, our circumstances. I think we're complicated. Maybe that's the word I'll say. I think there's that core and that potential, that awareness that every human being has that capability. But I think it's very easy to get covered up. It's very easy for like old patterns and patterns of behavior and societal patterns kind of get ingrained. But I think it tends to be the conditions and not the core of the person. That's what I believe too. I find myself shooting myself in the foot a lot by putting myself back into situations that someone would potentially stray away from or certain relationships because I just, it is hard for me to believe that they're out to hurt. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that meme that says once you study too much psychology, you just can't even be mad at people anymore because you understand why everybody's doing everything. Yeah. But but then there's the line between that and, but when do I walk away? That's a hard question. Because I feel like that's so much of what's dividing our world right now is that otherness, you know, that we're not connected because if we see ourselves as connected, we give as much compassion as we possibly can that's absolutely true and and that's a hard line because I first was introduced to this practice through martial arts and then became Buddhist practice but I've kept up the martial arts over the years and so reconciling those two was part of this question was like okay you know how do you defend yourself but at the same time not bring that hatred bring that that mind state it seems to be the, like a question of balance there's a Buddhist doctrine called the doctrine of the two worlds which so basically you've got absolute and relative reality. So in, from an absolute sense, people have this core of goodness. It's like the, it's the conditions that cause like how we act. But even from a really absolute sense, none of this really matters all that much. We're on this tiny little speck in the midst of a vast universe. It's like it's very temporary. So that's the absolute perspective. But then you got the relative perspective where everything matters, everything you feel, every experience. And so that what the teacher suggested was find the balance between the two in any given situation. And it's never absolute. It's always moving. So some situations where we've got absolutely no control, it's good to take more an absolute view and kind of step back. But some where we actually maybe like a family member or somebody close, it's like we might lean in a little bit more. But it's never so much that it's without some of that other perspective. And so like kind of seeing somebody, say, acting in a certain way that's harmful. Like you might not hate them. You might give them the benefit of the doubt. And you might not kind of put that mind state in there that, oh, this is a horrible person. But you still also might take steps to like, but you know what? I don't think this is good for my life or this might not be good for me to have in my life. Or even if someone like when we talk about someone physically attacked me, I would try to defend myself. But at the same time, I would hopefully not take it too far. Like in the sense that someone described, like it was actually a monk that said, it'd be like if, if your mom all of a sudden like went crazy and attacked you, you know, you would restrain her, but then would you keep punching her when she's down? Like probably not. And so he said, kind of have that same attitude towards everybody. It's like mm. you do the minimum necessary to protect yourself, but but don't bring that hatred into it. Oh, I love that. I love that. I want to know, what do you think is 
the purpose of life. Yeah, people always want to know that one. (laughs) I kind of like Eckhart Tolle's view on that, like the idea of bringing more awareness to the world, cultivating that awareness within yourself, but hopefully also within others that you've come in contact with. That seems to be like a good balance of of just living, but also kind of with that sense of a purpose to that, that higher sort of purpose. I think Eckhart Tolle did a good job of kind of taking a very complicated idea and really giving it a, a good focus. Yeah, like yeah. that might be it, to be fully aware and present with every moment of your, your life and and whatever may come next. To just be here. Be here and then be here with compassion. That's that, the whole, I think that's the whole thing of meditation and mindfulness and healing. It's that if we do that work within ourselves, we can ripple out the effects to everybody around us, but that's the only way. Definitely. Like, yeah, the work has to start inside because that's where we actually have efficacy. The, the line we draw is arbitrary between ourselves and others. You know, particularly with my OCD clients, I like to say, yeah, we've been breathing each other in for the past like hour, like sitting. <laughs> it's like little bits of me are coming off and parts of you and, and like what you ate and like everything's connected. And so and like realizing that and kind of living in that space where, where your life reflects that to me seems like a very meaningful way to live. I think that's why like having a practice is good to kind of remind people and remind ourselves. It's like, cause it's easy to forget. I mean, you know, people get frustrated. We're human beings. So, I mean, it's like, it's very easy to, to forget. And in fact, even one teacher I had one time said, you know, it's so easy to be mindful. It's at any given moment you can be mindful. He said, the thing that's hard is remembering to be mindful. Um, and so, but reminding yourself and living that way, like that in that connection, Yeah, practices ground us and root us, and humans need that. We, when we just float around aimlessly without that, it's very easy to get lost. And a lot of times, we don't realize we're lost until we've been in it for a while. I have this experience with I make YouTube videos and recordings and educational stuff for mental health for people, and then three months later, I'll listen to what I created three months ago, and and I'll think. Oh wow, that's a, that's a really great reminder, <laughs> right? So it, we can be connected to these insights at one point, but if we're not consciously bringing ourselves back to them, it's very easy to lose them. Definitely, and you could say that's a big part of even traditional practice is recalling the insights. It's like that's why having that that daily time to be with yourself gives you that opportunity to kind of bring them up and. Um, even the Buddha, he said, reflect on your sila and sila means virtue, but yet he meant it in such a way that also the things that you've done to improve your life, like the things that, that you've done to, to cultivate that mind state and like things you've done kind for other people, like kind of remembering that and, and kind of having joy as part of your practice. Um, sometimes it's, it's easy, it's easy to forget and think it's like, okay, it's all this drudgery, but it's like, but without like a joyful aspect to your practice it, it's it's easy just to it becomes work yeah Sadhguru, who's another spiritual meditation uh influential person which i'm sure you're familiar with him he says that joy is the root of of all growth yeah joy is it's funny when i went on a my longest meditation retreat um it was um a few years ago we did a month long it was a silent retreat and it was um it was a concentration retreat. So you're getting into deep concentration states and the the teacher had said this, but then actually found it to be true. 
if the mind wasn't happy and joyful, it's really hard to get into these because people think these concentrations are just, you know, the mind's just focused, but joy is a big part of it because joy is what kind of permeates the body and the experience. And so when you kind of are able to quiet the mind down, it's because it's content. It's because it's it's not seeking. It's not trying to, to find something out there. It's like it, it's content and joyful within itself. Um, and so, yeah, it was... Um, yeah. That, that's a good experience. Yes. And that explains so well. I love the way you said that because I tell clients that the real game changer is self-acceptance and self-compassion, not self-improvement. You will grow naturally. You will improve once that self-compassion and self-acceptance is there. And it's so hard for people to believe that. Yeah. The, like a most people this culture in particular like they think something's wrong with me like I've, i'm broken in a way and i gotta be fixed and sometimes they come there and they want you know hey fix me and it, like just like you said it's that self-acceptance it's like realizing that there's nothing wrong with you at root that's how it starts to change that's what frees you up mm-hmm. that's what slows down your mind that's what allows you to be present mm-hmm. that's what allows that fear to dissipate because if i believe in myself then even uncertain circumstances aren't that scary because I know that I'm here yeah and I know that I can handle it yeah it's like uh, it's like the tendency is to go outward to find the source of everything like including our problems and all and our happiness and all this stuff but it's the minds it's that inside that that creates it and it's it's a much more solid base it's like because you know putting our faith in things that are constantly changing and permanent aren't in our control it's such a risky place to put our happiness because it's like it's completely out of my hands. Whereas when it's internal, it's like, okay, now it's back in my hands. It's like now there's something I can actually do to do that. And I can, instead of, again, relying on the stuff that's always going to be changing. I feel like you've answered this throughout the interview, but I want to know what does mental health mean to you? Mental health is a, kind of what we've been talking about, like that state of being where you accept yourself, you accept even the problematic parts of yourself, except that like, you know, like anxiety, anger, depression, like even things that, that are difficult, but accept that these are experiences that are occurring, but they're not the core of me. We joked in the group and this became a kind of a running joke in the mindfulness group. When I said, said use the term anger has arisen, not, not I'm angry, like anger has arisen. <laughs> and so now people are like, okay, anger has arisen. But, um, <laughs> but that idea of, of not personalizing it, but seeing, like you said, that that core of who you are is not these things. Mm. And so kind of mental health, I would see it more as like happiness and thriving rather than, than just getting by. It's like, cause we have such a, like, a, like a break fix mentality in this culture. It's like kind of the medical model of that. Like, Oh, something's wrong now. Here, take this. And again, some people, maybe they got to get to that stage first, but yet it, it's almost like not enough. It, it's, it's like, it needs to be more, okay, now how do we find that joy and happiness in our life to find that peace with it? All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This was an amazing conversation. Mm-hmm. So enlightening. Well, I had a great time. I Thank you for having me. This was a, this was a great, great conversation. What a great way to start our morning. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. <laughs> I feel grounded, and I really am about to start saying anger has arisen next time you and I get into something <laughs> or whatever. Ego has arisen. <laughs> the ego is knocking. <laughs> yeah. All right, you guys. 
follow us on Pretty Mental Official on our Instagram page and look out for our conversations every other Monday at 8 a.m. Eastern time. And be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye.